what a great song to jump in together into God's word as we turn to Colossians 3 as we open there. I've, I've enjoyed seeing a couple of Uganda shirts, it made me so happy this morning. Fred and Ken, thank you for that. Uh, We've got to get a few more brought out one of these days. Um, also, very thankful that today is my son Noah's 17th birthday. What a treasure, yeah. He's we've still gotten to celebrate relatively few birthdays in America, so it is a privilege to get to, to be here and to get to be with God's people today. So we're going to start with Colossians 3 before we jump back into the, the book of Jonah. And part of why I'm doing this is because it's good for us to stay saturated, to swim, if you will, in a book uh, together. So we've been swimming with Jonah. It's good to swim with Paul and the Colossians. And um, good to see how the Old Testament story really builds and works together with the New Testament and how the New Testament shines light back onto the old and the old into the new and, and really the gospel standing at the center and Jesus being the centerpiece of all of it because he is the goal of all of history. He is the goal of all that is happening right now in the world and all that is yet to come. Though the nations rage, they will yet submit, follow, and proclaim Jesus as Lord. With that in mind, I want to read Colossians 3, verses 3 through 11. I know we haven't gotten there yet, and that'll be days to come, but again, to just see how it ties into the book of Jonah, specifically our chapter. Colossians 3, from verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. What a powerful text. As Paul reminds the Christians that Christ is the unifier that he breaks down the walls and the barriers between tribes and nations and peoples across ethnic lines and across economic lines and across any lines that our culture, our flesh might draw from Jew to Greek, barbarian and Scythian. They were considered the hillbillies of, of, Ro of Rome or Greece. Slave or free, it's Christ. He's all and he's in all. And he also reminds them that just as this gospel is incredibly global, right, as it go, it's going into all people, all nations, it is also intensely personal. 
He reminds them that they've died and their lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so he calls them to put to death what is earthly in them. Sexual morality, covetousness, impurity, evil desires. But notice that he, what he calls covetousness. In the text he says, covetousness which is idolatry. Last week we heard Jonah's prayer this poetic prayer and this declaration that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of hesed, of God's steadfast, loyal, covenant, overflowing, compassionate, merciful love towards his people. All of these that Paul listed are forms of idolatry. The things that we center ourselves on, the things that we believe will satisfy us or fill us. Even our pursuit of false security, false self-reliant protection and control above God. And of course, we are our biggest idol. And these things come and Paul states that on account of these in verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. These are not things to trifle with. They aren't things for us to get comfortable with and to say, well, that's no big deal. That's just part of being human. And though it is part of being human... It is sin, and it brings God's wrath, his righteous wrath towards sin. And so he tells the Christians to put these things away. How do we do that? How do we put away the wrath? How do we put away the sin that brings forth God's wrath because judgment is real. It is coming. God has appointed a day when he will judge the nations. Well, the the way is implied. It's not specifically spelled out in the text, but there's a word that we use and we know it well. Those who are in Christ, it's this word repent. This beautiful truth of repentance, this turning from Exercising faith in Christ and submitting to him. Because when we bow down to our vain idols, we forsake the hope of steadfast love. We miss out on what God has poured out for us in Christ. And to have a hope of hesed, of God's steadfast love, we together must have a healthy fear of God. And that's why Paul writes this. He wants them to know these things bring wrath. Judgment is real. Don't walk in these any longer. He calls us to live lives of repentance, to walk in a healthy fear of God that draws us into his steadfast love that then can play out in living lives of repentance before God and each other one that draws us near to the pursuing grace of God. And so we enter into our passage today asking the question, do we have a fear of God that leads to repentance? Do we truly believe the truths of God? And do we center our lives on them? Do we draw near in love to the pursuing grace of God? And do we draw others there with us? So with that, we're going to enter into Jonah 3. We're going to see how God addresses these things for us in this story. As we do that, let's just pray together and then we'll jump in.
Father, God, thank you that your word is alive, that it's living and active, and that it's one story. And that, Jesus, you are the center. And that your death is our hope of life because you've taken the wrath. You've borne our sin. And yet, Lord, you are at work in these hearts that struggle and wander, that fear and doubt, that run after, that cling to. And yet you are the God who sets your people free. And you declare that beautiful freedom. May we hear it. May we know it. May we behold Christ today together. Would you stir our hearts in this place for your passionate pursuing grace for us and to the nations. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen. So as we come into our story, we remember that Jonah has just experienced God's powerful hesed love, this faithful covenant-pursuing love that will not let him go. Even into the depths of the sea, God saves Jonah from his greatest enemy, which is himself and his own sin, his own thoughts, restores him to life. Jonah did not deserve God's kindness, and yet God lavished him in it, found him in a place of suffocating death and put breath in his lungs that he could sing God's praise. So now what? Is it enough? God, thank you that you've saved me from the, from the, the, the sea through the most unlikely means of salvation. So thank you, I am going home. I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna tell everybody about what you did. I'm gonna bring glory to your name and live out the rest of my days. That is not the story that God has for Jonah or for us. God has a purpose, he has a plan, and Jonah is a part of it, and he will fulfill this purpose. God's purpose will not be thwarted. And so the scripture comes and says, in chapter three, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. See, Jonah has experienced a great salvation, but there are deeper layers of his heart that have to be addressed, and we're gonna see these things being addressed as we go through the story, and yet as we come into the text, God tells him very clearly, you're gonna go to Nineveh and call out the message I tell you, and it, it echoes of chapter one, verse two, and if you remember back to what God said in verse two at the original call, he said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, God acknowledges what we know, and that's that they deserve judgment, they are a wicked people, and, and God is gonna send Jonah for that purpose. And yet, Jonah doesn't want to do that. Jonah doesn't want to give them the opportunity to repent. And so here, God just tweaks the message a little bit, like a parent to their child, the second time. Maybe a little, a little more clear here this time. Listen, uh, call out against it, 
the message I tell you. And the text just leaves us with that difference. And yet, as I hear those words, it, it just reminds me of the story back in, in the Old Testament where there's another prophet. But this prophet is a false prophet. And this prophet was actually hired by the enemies of God's people to go and curse God's people. And this false prophet who often received money and sought omens and and basically was involved in witchcraft practices, uh, God was not going to allow this false prophet to go and speak a curse over God's people because you can't curse whom God has blessed. You can't. And God tells him very clearly. And so finally, as God gives Balaam permission to go and, and, and to appear to curse uh, the people of Israel, God actually tells Balaam, he says to him in Numbers 22, you can go with them to curse Israel, but only do what I tell you. Interesting phrase. Because we know that in Balaam's heart was to do otherwise. He wanted to thwart in a sense. And God says no. And of course, Balaam has iniquity in his heart and God will oppose him. He's almost ready to strike him down. And Balaam will yet bring the truth and he will bless really prophetically, and later Balaam will also be judged because he is the one who tells God's enemies to bring women and incite and use sexual temptation to bring about the downfall of Israel. So Balaam's story is crazy, and that's not our sermon today. But as God tells Jonah, you're going to call out against it the message that I tell you. It just makes me wonder, with all of this Old Testament imagery that we've seen, is there something going on in Jonah's heart? Is he still wrestling with, how can I do this? And yet, I want them judged. And we don't know. But we, of course, we'll get to chapter four and we'll see that there is something in Jonah's heart. But either way, God makes it clear. Jonah, the message you're going to speak is going to be my message. And so what does Jonah do? Well, he's gonna obey the message. Really, three words God gives him, arise, go, and proclaim. And that's what Jonah's going to do. He arises, he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, from Israel, that's about 500 miles, and we don't know where the fish, how to say it pleasantly, um, released him onto the, the land. We don't know. But if we were to walk around 500 miles, that would be about from here to Chicago, and it would take a good month, maybe a little bit more, depending on if we're riding animals or how, how exactly we're going to get there. And I, I wish the text gave us Jonah's journey. I would have loved to have heard the stories of his journey, his thoughts, his wrestlings, uh, things he encountered. But that's not the point. There's another point. Right? So the text just draws us into it. He gets there. And, and notice that it says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Now, that could be three days to get through it, three days to go around it, but it's huge. And again, I picture it like Chicago and its suburbs. You've got miles and miles, really, for Chicago, 100 miles, you go around it, and you're, you're basically around the Chicago area. So for Nineveh, it's a very, very large city. And yet, if you notice in the ESV, I have a footnote in verse 3. If you look down, I don't know if your Bible has it, but mine says, the Hebrew, a great city to God. It's interesting. 
Only four cities in the Old Testament are called great to God or great cities, and they're all very important cities. One is, is Gibeah. Gibeah has a key role with God's people in, in Joshua. Another one is Jerusalem, and of course, Jerusalem is the center. And then there's Nineveh, and there's Babylon. And these cities are great to God, and it can't just mean they're, they're, they're big. They're great cities. But again, I think there's this, this play on words because this is a city that is great to God. God has a great purpose for this city. And so Jonah travels there. He walks into the city. And then in verse four, it says that Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, so we would assume around 10 miles, maybe more. Then he called out and listened to his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the message. That's the message God told him to proclaim. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Interesting, it's not impending judgment. It's not flee the city like Sodom. Get out while you can. Believe God, judgment's coming. Run. That's not the message. 40 days. There's a period of time between now and when that judgment is decreed. And of course, the assumption in there is that there is a window that perhaps could bring about change. Maybe. There's two ways we could read Jonah's response. One way that we could read it is that Jonah goes into the city. And this is really how I always imagined it as a kid when I was told the story of Jonah and the whale. Uh, that Jonah gets to Nineveh and he walks around for a day proclaiming over and over again, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be, will be overthrown. Some people have suggested that maybe he met with city leaders and dignitaries and, you know, uh, who knows. And yet, if you just follow the text, he walked a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then really, I think he was done. That was it. Um, walk in, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Walk out. Again, we don't know the details. This is, we call this holy speculation, right, within the text. And I wanna be clear, what is the text state and what are we wrestling through as we wrestle through the story? I think it's very probable though because Jonah's heart is not in this, he's obeying, but as we'll see next week, he does not want to see God's mercy to the Ninevites. So what happens? The most unexpected thing happens. Because the worst messenger, the worst missionary in the history of missions goes into a people. Of course, maybe they'll kill him. He doesn't know what to expect. Proclaims the most unlikely message. 40 days, none of it will be overthrown. He's done. Who would expect any kind of positive response? Even if God gave you a message and said, go into Charleston or go to Chicago or go to Vegas, go somewhere because my wrath is coming, I don't think any of us would expect a response. And the text is meant to shock us, 
Because as Jonah proclaims it, it just states it simply in verse five. The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed. Notice it doesn't say they believed Jonah. Again, it's mind-blowing. Jonah in his Israelite garb or whatever the, the prophet of that day was wearing, however he looked, would have been different from the Ninevites. He would have stood out. They hear him. They know this guy is different. And they know enough to know that Jonah's God is the one who's bringing judgment. And in that knowing, they simply believed. The language reminds us again of this story back in Genesis 15 as God tells Abram that I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. And the people of Nineveh, in the most unlikely way, a message to be brought, yet they believe, and they believe God. And then they respond in that belief. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. This whole section, verses one through five, really, the, the story of Jonah could have begun here. They didn't need the first two chapters. But like we've seen this, this literary device, right, where, where the, the, what's come before is so important. And the same here. Because really it could stop there. We could look at this and say, wow, they believed. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the least to the greatest. Go down to verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. That, that's enough. And just as we saw last week, that that part in the middle is so important. It's like shining spotlights on it. Read this. There is a message for us here that is so crucial. The text doesn't just jump to the end. It wants us to know that in the people's response, as they call for a fast, as they put on sackcloth, that the word reached the king of Nineveh. You thought that the response of a people simply believing God was crazy. This is crazy. Because this king rises from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. It's mind-blowing. Think about God confronting kings throughout the Old Testament. When God confronts Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me. The God of the Hebrews, right? The God of the slaves has said it. What is Pharaoh's response? Who is this God, right, that I would let you go? Right? Pharaoh is the one who has the authority and the power. We find pride and stubbornness and the hardening of the heart. 
Of course, God's working a purpose and a plan through Pharaoh. And this is a different purpose and a different plan. And we'll find God later interacting with Nebuchadnezzar and on and on. And yet this king, to me the most unlikely king of almost all of them, because the kings of Assyria, the kings of even the king of Nineveh is known for his atrocities. He is an evil king. Just before this time period, there's writings of one of these kings of Assyria, and he's boasting of all the wickedness he has done, and I won't read it to you because it makes my stomach churn. The violence, the wickedness. This king should call for Jonah's head and make an example of him and declare that the king's of the Assyrians are the greatest kings of all. Because that's what will happen 100 years later, or 70, as they surround Jerusalem and mock, really, the God of Israel. And this king doesn't do that. He does the unexpected. He leaves the seat of his power, the symbol of his authority. He leaves it. Why? Because if there is a God in heaven who is going to bring judgment on this place, that God has the authority. That God is greater than me and my authority. He lays it down. He strips off his royal robe, this great garment proclaiming how great this king is. But it is worthless. It is nothing in the light of the God who judges man's wickedness. Because this world is not all that there is. We will face a judge, and he rips it, strips it off. And then it says that he covers himself with sackcloth. And this is made of camel hair, would have been itchy, not comfortable. This is really the, the... The dress of the most impoverished of the land would have worn sackcloth. And so here is a king who trades his authority in his royal robe and he identifies with the poorest of the land. He is nothing. He puts on the the worst outfit you can imagine. I picture like a burlap sack, you know, here in West Virginia, but worse. And then he sits in ashes. Utter humiliation. Just, it should strike us the humility that is being displayed in this great, powerful king. He didn't cry out to his own gods, he didn't call their own prophets. He simply believed and he responded as a man who fears God. The fear of God leading him to believe, his belief to fear and to respond. And then in verse 7, he doesn't stop there as he's sitting in ashes. And I wonder what this would have looked like because usually you issue a proclamation from your throne and whether he was still on the throne when he did it, I don't know. I picture him in these ashes making a sovereign proclamation throughout all of Nineveh, by the decree of the king 
and his nobles. He's not, he's not in this alone. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. You hear that? I wonder what it would have looked like for man and beast to be covered in sackcloth. I picture the cattle in Uganda and trying to put sackcloth on them. No food and no drink, and we expect it for people. But again, he goes beyond what we expect. And he proclaims a fast even for the animals. Because even the animals are under this proclamation of judgment. Even creation suffers under the weight of their sin. In Uganda, in the dry season, sometimes it's terrible to go to bed at night because you can just hear, even if it's just one cow, and we've had this happen many times. Any of you guys want to give how that cow sounds? A cow that is thirsty at night in a valley that echoes makes it a little challenging to sleep because you hear it bellowing over and over and over and over. I want water. Take me to water. I need water. It's miserable. And I'm picturing an entire city with all of their animals, no drink and no food. For how long? It could have been, depending on how quickly the news spread and made it to the king, it could have been up to 40 days. I picture at least a few weeks and how miserable these animals would have been. But notice what he says. It's not just to make them miserable. It says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. I missed it. All those years in Uganda, the cow was calling out to God (laughs) for water because that's what they're doing. They're saying, oh God, Oh God, forgive us. Oh God, please relent of the judgment you've proclaimed. Let them cry out, oh God, for your mercy. And they do. And then notice what he says, because the next statement is so important. This is not an empty crying out, this has substance. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. He knows, he knows the wickedness of his people. And again, the language is reminiscent of Genesis chapter six as God looks down on the earth and sees it's filled with violence and that every thought of the heart is only evil all the time. And as he proclaims a judgment of water, And here, he knows the wickedness and the violence of their hands. He knows the evil that deserves the judgment that's been proclaimed. And he says, turn from that violence and turn to God. Cry out to God. And that's the the, the, the word for repentance, this turning from and turning to. You see it, return, return or turn from. 
And that really is the language of repentance. It's a turning from something. It's believing the truth and aligning myself in that truth and then crying out to God. And that's what's happening. A people crying out for their violence and sin, creation joining in that crying out to be set free from this judgment. And look at what the king says in verse nine. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Maybe God will be gracious. Maybe God will be merciful. Maybe he will relent from this judgment. And they've acknowledged what we want to see them acknowledge. They have sin, but God is merciful. The king leads his people in humbly crying out to the God who saves. Verse 10 tells us God's response. God saw this. He saw what they did, how they turned from their evil. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's incredible. All the violence that deserved all the judgment, and yet God relents. Is it fair? Is it fair for God to relent? Is it fair for God to turn from all of that evil and to withhold the judgment that they deserve? Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't. The truth is, though, God does this. He relents. He is merciful in judgment. He is kind to sinners, though his wrath is real because, and I think you know the answer to this, because 700 years later, there is going to be a greater king, and he will leave his royal throne, where Isaiah saw the train of his robe filling the temple and the living creatures crying out, holy, 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 is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory and he's going to lay aside that throne, lay aside his royal robes and he's going to take up a version of sackcloth. He's going to take on the simple dress of the people. He enters into this world and he grows. He identifies with the lowly and with the poor. He washes dirty feet. He acts like a servant, not a king. And he would face God's judgment for sin. He would fast and he would pray. He would overcome temptation and he would not sin. And in his innocence, God would mercifully for sinners, lay our sin that we deserve on 
him. And he would face God's judgment. He would cry out to the one who could save him, Abba, Father, if it is possible, would you take this cup from me? He cries out and then he says the most important words, but not my will, your will be done. Because he wants his Father's glory above his own comfort, above himself. And there is a bride that he will lay down his life to pursue. And he submits to his Father's sovereign will. And he brings salvation to guilty sinners like the Ninevites, like us. Because it's through Jesus' death that he relents and turns from his fierce anger that we might not perish. Do you remember when Jesus began his ministry? He walked and he just proclaimed a very simple message. Very simple. Jonah's message was simple and Jesus' message was simple. You remember what he said? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it. Of course, he taught much more than that. But repent. The king is here. God's kingdom has come. So turn and come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I will send you out into these nations. Because Jesus conquered death, he rose and he reigns at his Father's right hand with all authority in heaven and on earth. And his message is going into the nations. And what seems so mind-blowing in Nineveh And again, because it's not a story of Jonah and the whale, it's the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. And what seems impossible happens again and again and again and again. It happens when somebody in our midst hears this gospel and turns. It's miraculous. Faith in Christ. I love the, the video e Tao. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's worth getting. It's worth watching. It's a story of a missionary went into, oh, where was it? South America. And he stories God's Bible to a tribe that had never heard anything. And yet God had prepared these people. And as they're hearing this message and as they're listening to the story of God and they get to the death and the resurrection of Christ, they are so angry that they would kill Jesus who didn't deserve to die. But when they hear about the resurrection and when they hear the gospel and forgiveness, they erupt in faith and repentance and they're just proclaiming, Itau, it is true, it is true. And they show this whole village just jumping up and down. It's true, it's true. And we hear these types of stories, whether it's through Jim Elliott, through the Alka Indians, through Bruce Olson and the Modalone, through the Yanomamu. We go into Uganda and I can tell you story after story, God preparing a people to hear a message that seems unbelievable. Judgment and salvation. Because there is a greater prophet and a greater king with a greater message. And that greater message demands a greater response for every one of us in this room. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he is Lord.
This message is precious because the bearer, the king, is of infinite value. And you know what's crazy? Up to this point in the story of Jonah, pagan sailors have repented, pagan sea captain, pagan king, pagan people. And you know, when we use the word pagan, we're just saying worshipers of other gods and idols. That was us. They're all turning to God in faith in the face of judgment. Do you know who has not turned to God in faith? Facing judgment? If you go back into 2 Kings, again, where Jonah appears in the storyline, listen to what the, the scripture says. It says that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, in Israel. He reigned for 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So here's another wicked king. But he's a wicked king in Israel. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amati, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. And again, that's Exodus language. They're being oppressed. And really their oppression, much of it is at the hands of these Assyrians. For there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of said evil king, Jeroboam, son of Joash. Right? That contrast is meant to make us scratch our head. Wicked pagan king leads his people in salvation, pagan people. Here is the king over God's people with God's prophets around him, not repenting, walking in the stubbornness of his heart, and yet God even using him to deliver people. There's another group of people who didn't repent. See, when Jesus preached, it says in Matthew 13 that some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so too will the Son of Man. And look what he says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The same posture. Who is it that's not repenting? It's the people who should be repenting. It's those who have access to God's truth. It's those who are sitting there and listening to it day after day, listening to Jesus teach day after day, hardening their hearts, refusing to see what is so clear to be seen because they are blinded to their own sin and their own need. They would rather have their perspective of themselves and of God than let God define it. 
because all of us are the Ninevites. And God has appointed a day with which he will judge the world. Brothers and sisters, hearing a better message leaves us without excuse for a better response. And that leads us to some very important responses. And I hope this is helpful as a takeaway because as a people, we must delight in repentance as God's great gift. We say, why the king of Nineveh and not the king of Israel? Why the king of Nineveh and not Pharaoh? Because God is the one who grants repentance according to his great mercy. It is God's gift. Second Timothy says it like this, as Paul encourages Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness, right? There's those within the church who are bringing in funny teaching, false teaching, and he says, correct them with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And he says it, God may grant them repentance because repentance is God's gift to grant. They boast in nothing. God's mercy, his sovereign grace is being revealed through the pagan king and through the pagan people and through you and me whose eyes are opened to our desperate need of God and that we too would lay aside our pride, the authority that we cling to, our wiseness in our own eyes or whatever the idols are that we've created to sustain ourselves that we would cast them down and join the king of Nineveh in the ashes and say, you're better. That we would join the disciples at the feet of Jesus saying, we have left all things for you. That we would believe God, turn from sin, and cling to Christ together. Romans 2 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. If you're in Christ, the gift of repentance is for you. I want to be clear there. Even as we talk about the reality that it takes God to open our eyes, to behold our need, the Spirit's work to regenerate, to bring new life, that we would see Christ and hear the gospel and believe it takes God. If you're in Christ, the gift of repentance is for you. It has been granted to you. And yet the call comes, repent. Brothers and sisters, repentance is radical. It's as radical as saying, I am not my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify Christ in my body. It's as radical as saying, I don't want sin. I want Jesus. It's as radical as saying, I'll do whatever it takes to kill sin in my life. If it means to pluck out your eye or cut off an arm, to use Jesus' very strong language, then we'll do it. Because the treasure of Christ is better than the fleeting pleasure of sin. I'll do whatever it takes. Cast down that phone for the sake of Christ. 
In the New Testament, I love the responses that we get because like the king of Nineveh, we hear all kinds of responses. We hear Peter, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. We hear others, we've left everything to follow you. We hear another, I give half my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay back four times. Others sold houses and lands and brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet because they were pursuing a kingdom greater. One who was thought to have nothing broke an alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it on Jesus' head. And though she was ridiculed, she knew where her treasure was. Another began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, kissing him, pouring perfume. You see, repentance is belief in action. It's acting on the truth of what God has said. And brothers and sisters, it is also global. Just as we've seen over and over again, it's intensely personal, it goes deep, it cuts right into here, but then it forces us out of ourselves to say that we are bigger, we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. We are a part of a kingdom that is going forth because all around us, God is calling people to repent. And let me tell you, if he can use Jonah, he can use you. A few weeks ago, I sat with someone, I was just meeting them for the first time. He said, oh, I've heard about your work in Uganda, and while wow, it's so great what you've done and what you do, I could never do that. And anytime I hear those two things go together, I'm always like, Lord, what do I say? Okay, because first of all, um, we've gained way more from Uganda than what we've had to offer, and it has been our privilege and delight, right? It's, don't praise, no, it's Christ. Um, that's one side, but the other side is the, the I could never do that, and I, in that situation, I just looked at him and I said, oh, I promise you really could, and I have to say it carefully, right? But it's not true, it's not true. If God could use Jonah, the worst messenger, there is hope for anyone. And if he can use Keith and Laura Beth, there's hope. He can use you anywhere because it's for the treasure of the gospel. It's his work in the hearts of people. Just as he said to Jonah, right? Go. Proclaim. What does he say to us? As you're going, make disciples, baptize, teach. And that word comes right to us. And if you are in Christ, you can't escape that message. You can't. You can waste it, but you can't escape it. And God in his grace will pursue you again and again to say that the treasure of Christ is your freedom and is worth speaking into the hearts and lives of people because he's preparing a bride, he's preparing a people, he's working in hearts, just be faithful, right? Right here among us. So we end really with the question we began with, do we have a healthy fear of God? Knowing that he opposes sin and he will judge, but Christ that causes us to cling to Christ and to cry out to God and to cast down our idols and to live lives of repentance before God and each other, that draws us near into the love and the pursuing grace of God and causes us to live it out 
and to take it outward and to make disciples of nations. Let us be a people who practice radical repentance for the unsurpassing worth of knowing and glorifying Christ in our body and among the nations. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Um, Thank you. You know the unworthiness of every one of us. You know our, our doubts, our struggles and fears. You know the sin which clings so closely that your word commands us to lay aside, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the hope set before him endured the cross, despising the shame And so, Lord, may we cling to you. May we cry out together for you. You would have mercy, that you would bind up, cleanse, and set these hearts free to run in the hope and the truth of this gospel you have given. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the great king and that you have come down and that you know our struggles and you identify with the lowly that you are victorious and you will be victorious. Lord, may the gospel go forth in Hurricane, in St. Albans and in Charleston and Huntington and Barbersville and into the nations, right into Afghanistan, right into Uganda, that churches that are so desperate for the truth of your word and the hope of the gospel that have been so gutted by the prosperity false gospel, Lord, that you would win a bride for your son, that you would use your people, even us, for the glory of your name. Amen.